labor has dignity. Thank unions, it's Friday. Welcome to On The Line, I'm Hussein. And I'm Jeff. Jeff is the producer of the show and is subbing in for Rachel this week, who will be returning during the next episode, but we're so grateful for Jeff to join as a co-host this week. On The Line is a show to highlight a real people's history and class struggle perspective of what's happening on the ground in workplaces and sectors across the United States. Whether we're on the assembly line, on the phone line, or on the picket line, you will always find us on the line. Today, we'll be talking about the latest chapter of struggle in Hollywood, specifically the new contract fight for the International Alliance of Theatrical and Stage Employees, or IATSE, coming up in 2024. This comes off the massive strike by SAG-AFTRA and WGA last year, over 70,000, some numbers even range upward to 100,000 members amongst the Actors and Actresses Guild, SAG-AFTRA, and over 11,000 writers in WGA. We'll be joined by Rihanna Shaheen, who is an organizer and member with IATSE in Los Angeles. But first, I'll pass it over to Jeff for this week in labor history. On the line, we look to history for education, motivation, and inspiration for the fights ahead. On February 24th in 1912, Massachusetts women and children textile strikers were brutally beaten by the police after a 63-day walkout to fight for better wages and against work speed-ups. With a long history of the police as strike breakers, it makes you wonder, who do they really serve in the end? The strikers had been a part of the historic Bread and Roses strike, uh, which was kicked off in Lawrence, Massachusetts, and is one of the most historic strikes in U.S. history one made up of majority immigrant women workers from over 50 different ethnic groups that were represented by the legacy of the IWW and industrial unionism more broadly. On February 27th in 1939, the Supreme Court ruled that the sit-down strikes were illegal uh, after the tactic had been successfully innovated on by UAW workers. Sit-down strikes proved to be so effective because workers would halt production on the line and essentially occupy the factory rather than leaving it, reducing the ability of the boss to bring in scabs and keep production running during the strike. Through the sit-down strike, UAW workers were able to win union recognition and huge wage increases at GM or General Motors, kicking off a massive drive of new organizing victories for the UAW the Supreme Court ruling shows that, you know, the bosses were scared of this tactic and the power that it showed that it could hold. On March 1st, in 1938, the Hoover Dam was completed. The project was the product of the labor of 21,000 workers facing brutal working conditions, 112 of which were killed on the job. The community was so mad at President Hoover that they pushed to change the name of the dam to Boulder Dam which was later changed back to Hoover Dam by an act of Congress. On the line, we'll keep looking to the past to fight for our future. Now let's get into it. You know, we're going to try a different type of segment on On the Line where we talk about what so many organizers in workplace fights confront mm-hmm. every day. 
and new organizing and contract fights, ultimately the fundamentals are all the same and it's really all about the fundamentals. And the thing I want to ask you, Jeff, is how many times, if you can even count in your experience organizing in the labor movement, have you heard the phrase, I'm all for it, but I just don't have time? Mm. Honestly, I've heard that one, yeah, definitely way more times than I can count. I feel like it's probably one of the most common excuses that we come across either, you know, when talking to workers ourselves or just like checking in with other worker leaders or organizers, you know, they go out, they got an assignment. It's like, cool, you know the leader, you got a great relationship with them, try to bring them into the committee. Yeah. But then they come back and they're like, yeah, they're totally about it, but they're just too busy. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's worth just like putting out there what, just to be upfront, what we think about the phrase, I'm all for it. I just don't have time. And that is, and it's what we tell every organizer we work with, whether a worker, worker leader or a staff person, no one will ever do anything that they, no one will ever have time for something they don't want to do. Mm-hmm. And the analogy I always make is if you have a friend who's asking you to hang out, and you don't really want to hang out with them, are you going to tell them, I don't really like hanging out with you? Or mm-hmm. are you going to tell them, ah, shoot, I had some things come up, rain check, let's let's connect some other time. Let's connect next week. So mm-hmm. oftentimes it's a cover for something much deeper, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And at least in my experience, it comes down to fear, hopelessness, mm-hmm. and all the emotions associated with the what prevents people from taking action. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. If somebody really cares about something, mm-hmm. they will be able to try to make the time for it. Yeah. And like, I don't want to sound, you know, unsympathetic to like very real, like real reasons that people might have for yeah. limitations on their time. Like if they got childcare, second job, third job, mm-hmm. sick parents at home. Like, but I think the thing that really cuts through that for me is the fact that I know a lot of dedicated organizers who are actually, who are dealing with that shit every day, yeah, but still do manage to make the time because it matters to them. And it's like, if, frankly, it's like, if they can make the time, then I know that when we're hearing about it from, from a worker who doesn't actually have all of those reasons behind it, yeah, they can make the time too. Yeah. So I think it is, it is a matter of like, are we going to dig in to what the real hesitation is that they don't want to talk about in the same way. Yeah. Um, but I'd, I'd be curious, like, when when you're getting into these conversations, what do you think it really, why, why do you think that they say that rather than actually, like, giving their their real hesitation or their real question? Yeah. No, I think I think this is, this is the key thing. It's worth really interrogating, like, what is, what is at the core of someone's inaction? inaction? Um, and mm-hmm. what I always think about is when you're, Organizing a workplace, there's a reason that workplace hasn't been organized before there's a a real drive, Mm -hmm. right? It's no new organizing campaign is spontaneous. I mean, we were just talking about the the Bread and Roses strike. Mm -hmm. A lot of how that's characterized in the history books is that workers sort of spontaneously rose up and took action. Mm -hmm. And what happened happened, and it was historic and all these types of things. And I think oftentimes people— because they've never witnessed change in their workplace that's significant, mm-hmm. they'll just wait until the moment, hoping that it'll come, or mm-hmm. just have lost hope entirely. And so, really, mm-hmm. I think it's having gone through. If you're uh, organizing a workplace, you've been at the 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 place for you know five, ten, fifteen years, having not seen anything changed, and 
all these different types of attempts being made, whether it's mm-hmm. talking to HR, doing even a delegation to management, mm-hmm. whatever the tactic is, mm-hmm. not seeing it change. Well, am I really, if I don't feel hopeful in anything working, am I really going to do the scary thing? No, definitely not. So I think hope is a big part of it. Mm-hmm. I think fear is a major part of it. There are all these barriers that will prevent someone from taking action. And that's exactly why workers mm-hmm. at an, at a workplace that's freshly being organized hadn't done it before. They mm-hmm. didn't succeed in forming a union. Mm-hmm. But I think the moment, like if you, in the first 10 minutes of a conversation where you're trying to move a worker to take action and you're now, in that first 10 minutes, you're you're getting into a debate on the basis of someone's barriers, you already lost. Mm-hmm. You already lost because you're now talking about what are all the things that's getting in their way of doing the thing rather than why it is they would want to do the thing. Mm-hmm. And so it's a question of positive motivation or defensiveness and negative motivation. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think that like sometimes when people say, just to bring it back a little bit, I think yeah. sometimes when people say that they don't have the time or that they're too busy, it it can also come across as though it's like, like they're giving up to like a force of nature. It's yeah. just an inevitability. Actually, I, I will just always be too busy. Yeah. And I mean, I think that when people are leaning into that, it is kind of a an easier way to move away from actually having the the tough discussion. And it's it's easier to frame it as out of your control. That's right. Rather than actually bringing it back to the fact that everybody needs to make a decision. Yeah. Which when we bring it to people and say like, like you know, every organizer has heard like calling the question. Yeah. Uh, and calling the question isn't just like making the ask, right? It's not just like you're going to stand with your coworkers and sign your card to form a union. Yeah. But it's calling the question is presenting that choice yeah. of either we're going to continue to do nothing and deal with, you know, with low pay, deal with, you know, that like shitty supervisor who disrespects you, yeah. deal with people just throwing your schedule into chaos, cutting your hours, whatever. And, you know, it's like, are we going to deal with that? Or are we going to make the decision to take the time, put in the effort, take the risk and do something scary to finally change it? Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's totally right. I mean, no one's going to say, I mean, honestly, respect to anyone who's this honest with themselves, Mm, mm -hmm. but no one's going to say, I'm not going to do this because I'm a coward. (laughs) It's true. No Mm -hmm. one's going to say that. Mm -hmm. And so you have to, before you get into any ask, like whether it's signing a strike pledge, whether it's wearing a button, whether it's getting a phone number from a coworker, Mm -hmm. which can even be scary for some people, especially when they know, well, it's going to be for the purpose of moving my group. To, mm-hmm. to action in confrontation with the company that has all the power over us. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. in order to make that ask, you need to demonstrate and like the person you're talking to needs to confront head on this question of, is the cost of inaction higher than the cost of action? Mm-hmm. Because the thing that's obvious to people is the cost of action. Mm-hmm. That's what drives people to inaction, mm-hmm. right? It's, am I going to get fired? Am I going to, like, what does this mean for my schedule? Um, will this put a target on my back? I mean, a lot of times it's fear, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Hopelessness. Is it really going to change anything? Mm-hmm. Those things are prevalent in people's minds because they've been trained to think that way mm-hmm. for the X amount of years they've been in the workplace and nothing's changed. Mm-hmm. And so for us, when we approach a conversation, it's 
it like really the purpose of this whole discussion is getting into the psychology of why we do certain things in organizing. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. that's why we do agitation, where yeah. it's like you have to draw out what is in it for this person. Why is it worth the risk of action? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think it's like that is the right calculation that we need to be drawing out for people and putting the question in front of them in a way that like, we, of course, like you want to be agitating around it, digging into the issue, developing the relationship for a while. Because like, also, if you try to really jump into it and like work through some tough hesitation on the first conversation, yeah. you're probably setting yourself up for an L. Yeah. Like you're, you're probably not going to move that person. Yeah. Um, and, you know, sometimes it is worth thinking like, who is going to be the right person to have the conversation. Um, but I want I wanted to raise another like common pitfall that yeah. I think we run into when people hear the hesitation on like, well, you know, I don't have enough time. Yeah. I think sometimes a lot of organizers actually try to like kind of negotiate yes. with the worker on yes. it, which is like definitely, it, it's tempting. Yeah. It's like, oh, well, you know what? It's actually going to be easy. It's only going to take a little bit of time. Yeah. You know, you talk to a couple coworkers a week here and there. We all do our part, which is true. Like everybody yeah. should do their part. But when you start negotiating with a worker on how much effort they're going to put towards themselves and yeah. like winning what they need on the job, suddenly it's like they're doing you a favor and That's you're right. trying to get a little bit out of them. But instead, it's like you you can't really put bounds on it. It's like it's going to yeah. take what it's going to take yeah. and you're going to get what you're willing to put into it. That's right. It totally signals to them that it's a favor mm -hmm. and, and that it's not about them fighting for the changes they need in their life. And it also, in getting into the negotiation of like, oh, okay, I get it. Yeah, you're really busy. Um, maybe you could do this. Or mm -hmm. do you think you can do this? Mm -hmm. Or um, how much time would you have? Oh, oh like 30 minutes? Would you? And it's like, frankly, they're going to say no to all of it. Or even if they agree in that conversation, they're not going to do it. Mm -hmm. Because you haven't actually confronted their barrier. Mm -hmm. if, mm -hmm. they're, if they're like, I don't really have time, it means... They haven't like they haven't really explained what is it that's actually stopping them from from committing mm -hmm. to something. And it's it's never about time. It's never about time. It's always about is it something they really desire to do? Mm -hmm. And is it something they feel like they need to do? Because then suddenly you have people who you thought would never be involved, whatever involvement means in any sort of the course of a campaign, mm -hmm. you feel like you all, like, and it's why we always tell worker leaders, organizing staff, don't ever discount anyone. Mm -hmm. Don't ever write anyone off. But you'll have people who you would think would never get involved because of X, Y, and Z reason who mm -hmm. are like the strongest fighters. Yeah. And it's like, what the hell? Like mm -hmm. this person has two kids, married, grandkids. They're, they're about to lose their house. Their health insurance is a mess. And it's like, those are, like, those could be the things that would prevent someone from taking action, or they could be precisely the reason someone needs to change their life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 100%. I mean, right, when people are worried about not having enough time, it's like, yeah, why do you feel tired at the end of the day? Yeah. Is it because, like, you're working two jobs because neither of them pay you enough? Yeah. Or is it because you're trying to, like, have some conversations with your coworkers? That's right. But, you know, I mean, I think, like, we can also take, like, try to, as organizers— take some effort to make organizing also a personally fulfilling experience, right? Yes. Like, it's not like people should be going around and feeling like organizing is a second job, but instead seeing it as a source of confidence and yeah. like a source of self-empowerment where they're going and, you know, in overcoming those fears with the support of their coworkers, with the support of other organizers, mm -hmm. they can actually 
really, like, change their self-conception. Oh, totally. Um, and I think it's like that often goes hand-in-hand hand with some of those leaders. Like, some of the people you're talking about who, you know, maybe they they aren't about it at first. They aren't saying yes. But when you have the right conversation, I, I, these are some of my favorite moments in organizing, when you see it click, mm-hmm. and suddenly they, you know, there's no end to their commitment. There's right. no end to the effort that they're going to put in. You almost got to hold them back from, like, house visiting every one of their coworkers, but, right. but not really. If they want to do that, God bless. Yeah. No, exactly. I think that's totally right. It As soon as someone decides to take that step and, and makes the choice, because ultimately no one can force their coworker to take action. They have to make that decision themselves, and it's better to— get them to make that decision and embrace the action with all the risks are, that are associated with it then drag them into it because it's not uh, it's not a maintainable uh, pace for them. Mm-hmm. They're eventually going to fall off. Mm-hmm. Um, unless you have the leader, of course, in which case maybe they can't just be like, you got to strike. And they're like, cool, we'll do. Uh, and they trust them so much. Mm-hmm. I mean, that sort of speaks to the need to recruit leaders in the workplace mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. where you don't necessarily, the depth of the conversation may not be needed. But like we're talking committee recruitment, right? Mm-hmm. We're talking mm-hmm. about recruiting the leaders. Mm-hmm. Um but I think the the point you made around how like and it, again it goes all back to someone's experience in the workplace having never seen or participated in an action that transformed it for mm-hmm. the better. Mm-hmm. But once someone does, even if it's not like something big, even if it's something small, they pick mm-hmm. up a little W and crack through the uh, self-image they have of themselves and the lack of power they have, them mm-hmm. and their coworkers, and realize, wow, like this thing that management said was impossible to change over and over and over again, mm-hmm. we actually changed it. Mm-hmm. It changes your entire life. It changes how you see yourself in your family or in relationships. It gives you confidence in life. And, yeah. you know, like I always use this example. We recruited this like committee member who— had worked at this uh, workplace for like 30 years, um, recruited her to the committee. And it, it took, it was like deep conversations with her, a series of really deep conversations. And she joined the committee eventually and she started bawling out, um, mm-hmm. like, and was a leader in her department. And then she divorced mm-hmm. her husband the week later. And I was like, holy shit. Um, and I mean, I think that just really encapsulates it. But yeah. one thing I wanted to ask is, you know, I feel like a lot of times, and this kind of goes back to the psychology of organizing, but a lot of times people are really tempted. Um, Mm -hmm. Like we were talking about agitation, getting someone's story and like getting them angry. Mm Because like anger is an emotion that will facilitate action. Mm -hmm. And someone will come up to to us and be like, yo, uh, Jeff and Hussein, like this person's like really pissed about this situation that's going on in their job. Like they're definitely going to be down. Or they like go and have a conversation and and it's like, yeah, I like got out all their issues and they were really pissed and I asked them to mm-hmm. to do it and they didn't want to do it. Um, they didn't have time or whatever. <laughs> and I, I think this speaks to the sort of like agitation and then what? Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, 100%. And anger isn't enough. Yeah. Um, anger is very important. Yeah. It's like a critical part of recognizing what's wrong with your situation and feeling energized enough to do something about it and and overcome a lot of it. But I think you're right that it's like, there's a lot of people out there who hate their job, go home every day, complain to their, you know, partner, family, dog about just how they're going to quit soon. How they can't take another day. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that they're going to, 
that they're going to go and organize. Right. Um, I think the positive angle on it is actually very important that there's something to strive towards, and that's where hope comes in. Right. Um, right. So, you know, bringing in sort of a vision of how, not, you know, how things could change, not just in the way of like, you know, we could win a 15%, like yeah. a 15% raise, we could get better health insurance, but it's about what does that also mean to them on a personal level? Right. Like, how would it change their life yeah. to be able to get that pay increase? What would they do with that extra money? Does it mean that they can quit their second job? Does it mean that they can spend more time with their family? Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's part of making that personal connection too to understand how that change will really materialize for them. Yeah. And the more that they think about it, the more real that it becomes, the more tangible it is, the more that they can use it as a source of motivation. Right, right. No, 100%. And I think it's like the positive vision that's going to drive someone to do something is it's way more action-oriented because you're actually fighting for something than just fighting against something. Because it's easier to just complain, mm -hmm. right? When mm -hmm. we talk about agitation, like it's oftentimes why the people who are always talking shit are the people who aren't gonna, aren't really gonna do anything because they're used to talking shit and not doing anything. Mm -hmm. And the, I'm curious to hear how you've kind of like responded to these these sorts of profiles, you know the type of people I'm talking about. It's like mm -hmm. anger, but cynics. Mm -hmm. And it's like, to me, it's the most annoying thing because they're like so confident about all the problems at work and then they influence other people's hope. They diminish other people's hope who also have all the same issues, but they may not be as vocal about it. Mm -hmm. And like, but that shit's never going to change. Mm -hmm. So then it's like, why are you complaining about it? Like, don't you ever get, the the question I ask is, don't you ever get tired hearing yourself complain <laughs> and nothing happened? Mm -hmm. And it's kind of a dagger question, but it's true. It's like, mm -hmm. but the, the other element that you raised, which I think is crucial, it's like, as a committee member, as a worker, talking to your coworker, as a staff organizer, you have to give something to someone that they can be hopeful in. And that speaks mm -hmm. to the plan, right? Like, the plan is a lot different than anything else they've witnessed in work because mm -hmm. it's a plan based on not just them doing something alone, but them doing something with all their coworkers uh, together. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think the people who really start to stand out at that point are actually the ones who have a lot of faith and trust in their coworkers. Yeah. Because like behind some of that cynicism is usually sometimes a sense that, you know, that their coworkers aren't going to do anything. Right. Or that their coworkers just don't recognize the problem in the same way. You know, especially if you have like uh, somebody in the shop who's like, really, you know, maybe considers themselves kind of a radical, considers themselves more political, but um, stops short of trying to build that kind of relationship and organization with their coworkers to do it. Yeah. No, 100%. I think it's like, I mean, again, it sort of speaks to the need for leaders because they may not feel confident either. Like, it may, it may come off as a cynicism of like, oh, my coworkers don't care. My coworkers aren't going to do anything. But really, at the core of it might be their own lack of confidence in their ability to talk to their coworkers and move them to action mm -hmm. because they don't have a lot of trust uh, mm -hmm. in their department or whatever it is. So, yeah. Um, anyway, I've really, yeah, really enjoyed this discussion. I think it gives me a lot to think about and uh, bring back to the shops that I'm organizing. But, like, yeah, just you know, for everybody listening, next time that you hear somebody say that they don't have the time to organize, that they just you know can't make it work. Really try to peel it back and think deeply about 
what their real hesitations are, Mm -hmm. how you can get to the heart of it. I think, you know, presenting that plan to win that gives them hope, presenting that kind of, that opportunity Mm -hmm. and calling Mm -hmm. the question on it so that they understand deep down what the cost of inaction is going to be, what the cost of, like, what the possibility is of Mm -hmm. winning um, so that they get to make the decision for themselves that, Actually, they will make the time. That's right. Um, and then you'll have some committed leaders like you've never seen. Yeah. And I think just one last point to wrap up on. You're not going to, in in overcoming barriers, it doesn't mean eliminating them. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean you're squashing every, there are going to be hurdles. There mm-hmm. are going to be challenges. Like there are going to be sacrifices. I think Malcolm X says it best. It's like, if we're talking about justice and the first thing that comes out of your mouth are all the reasons why you can't fight for justice, then are you really about justice? Mm. It requires sacrifices. And so, but the difference if you approach an organizing conversation first on what is it that someone needs to see changed and committed to to fighting to realize that change before you get into the barriers, the, the difference in attitude is on the one hand, talking about barriers with the attitude of here are all the things that are stopping me from doing this thing versus here are all the things I need to figure out how to navigate and get over so that I can do this thing. Yeah. Yeah. No doubt. Well, new segment, Organizing Psychology 101. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. We'll try to do some more like this. uh, And if any of our listeners have ideas on topics you want to hear about, any challenges that you're running into, just, you know, DM us on Instagram or directly on the website uh, if you want to go hit us up there. And yeah, just let us know what you're thinking and what you want to hear. What's what's challenging you? Yeah, mm-hmm. what's what's going really fucking well that you wanna you want us to talk about? Oh, no doubt, we need <laughs> yeah. the W's too. Yeah, we need the W's. Anyway. Well, we're so glad to be joined by Rihanna Shaheen, who's a member of IATSE Local 871, chair of the local's Young Workers Committee, and helping lead member action teams uh, in the local based in Los Angeles, California. Rihanna, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So before we get into IATSE specifically, and there's a reason we're talking about it, obviously we mentioned it at the top of the show, that IATSE and the AFM, the Musicians Union, are gearing up for a major contract fight this year. But we're coming off the heels of over 150,000 members of SAG-AFTRA, actors and actresses and performers, and 11,000 writers with the Writers Guild of America who went on strike. And it was a it was a long strike, I think over 100 days uh, for, for writers at least, and maybe even for mm-hmm. uh, SAG members. Um, and it was the first time that both unions struck in over 50 years together. And they secured some pretty serious gains. Among the most important demands were regulations around the usage of artificial intelligence and increase in residual pay. Uh, Rihanna, as someone who lives in Los Angeles, obviously in a union that's also in Hollywood labor, that ecosystem, uh, highly active in your union. Tell us about what led up to the strike and, and the sort of revival of struggle in Hollywood and the impacts it's had on Hollywood labor. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, I think the rise of streaming and new technologies since that we've seen, you know, an eroding working conditions for like film workers. I think we've seen that the, uh, you know, the studios are making a very like concerted effort to turn our work more into like 
a gig economy, basically. Mm-hmm. And that's something that affects, you know, not just us and but of course, like the actors, the writers, the directors. And so, you know, it used to be that these, you know, major Hollywood studios were selling tickets. You know, you saw uh, most like movies um, at movie theaters. You saw mm. TV shows on like network TV broadcasts, right? But there's been this huge, enormous shift in the way that like, you know, TV shows and movies are, you know, monetized in the way that this content is like consumed, uh, where it's basically almost all streaming, right? Like so much of like the biggest Mm -hmm. hit movies and TV shows um, are exclusively on like Netflix, Hulu. Mm -hmm. And of course, like, you know, these corporations are making like billions of dollars off the back of like Hollywood workers and exploiting what used to be you know, these like contract loopholes around streaming. They mm-hmm. used to say, oh, it was like new media. It's very experimental. Uh, we don't know how to like, uh, you know, put this in the contract and you got to like, give us a sec, you know, like you got to like, let us, <laughs> let us live in a way. Right. Cause they just, uh, they knew what they were doing. They knew they were going to make a ton of money off of this. Um, and they didn't want us as workers, um, you know, getting what was ours. So You have studios like Netflix, Amazon, Disney, Apple, Mm -hmm. you know, earning record profits for years, right? And paying next to no taxes. Um, Meanwhile, you know, little has changed in the quality of life uh, for film industry workers. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, I think with like the emergence of like new technology, which I think we're still seeing develop. I think it was 2022, like late 2022, we saw... Open AI's ChatGPT released to the public, mm-hmm. and just how that like really like blew up, and how the technology was like rapidly developing, mm-hmm. how all these like giant conglomerates were in this like generative AI race, and just how uh, this new technology was able to really uh, seriously be seen as like uh, a possible way to like outsource the work that we do. Um, and so I think the stakes became really high with like those two, you know, the new technology and streaming being like two main existential threats to our industry in particular. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I was looking into like Netflix in particular and just it's wild to think that maybe 15 years ago, Netflix main business was actually just mailing DVDs to people. Mm. But they've really evolved in actually like charting out this transformation in how media is consumed, just like you're saying, um, to the point that now they have, I think, like over 230 million subscribers around the world. And there was a Forbes survey recently that showed that 99% of American households now subscribe to at least one of these streaming services, which is just, I mean, I, I think that we all see it as pretty ubiquitous, like it's a big part of the culture. But that was still very surprising to me to see that it's become that ubiquitous at this point, that widely adopted. But when when you mentioned that point on sort of how this is turning things into more of a gig economy for IOTC members, could could you expand on that a little bit? Like, how is that looking, uh, the like gigification of the work? Yeah, definitely. I think we saw this with the Writers Guild uh, struggle where Um, You know, it wasn't just about like artificial intelligence, obviously, that became like their number one issue very quickly as they saw like, you know, just this, um, you know, the open AI becoming this thing that was just like on the heels of like everything 
that mm-hmm. we were doing. But, um, you know, I think um, in terms of like mini rooms, like the idea that, uh, you know, a lot of these TV writers rooms didn't have, you know, minimum staffing or they didn't have mm-hmm. minimum lengths of like employment. So like, you know, I'm not a writer, but, um, you know, I know that makes your your situation very precarious, right? Where you don't know how long you're going to work. They're putting like the workload of like maybe like, I don't know, 15, 20 people on like five people to do in like way less time. Mm. And, you know, luckily through like the steadfastness like of like the, the writers, you know, they were able to win really much greater regulations on mini rooms. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I think that's just like one example of how they're really trying to like, you know, cut like the workforce in half and really trying to put everything on, um, you know, a small group of workers just for like their their bottom line, which is profit, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think just on the point of artificial intelligence and the this Hollywood struggle last year, I, I feel like really put it on the map in a much more concrete way than people were used to in the whole media storm around artificial intelligence. And you have on the one hand, people who are like, this is going to destroy humankind as we know it. Uh, and on the other, people who say, well, it's not actually that big of a deal. And the Hollywood struggle of the writers, actors, actresses, and performers really showed that this is actually, this could be existential for millions of workers. This is actually a very serious uh, tool that the rich and powerful are introducing to the workplace to reduce the cost of labor and increase the rate of profit. Uh, and ultimately, at the end of the day, and I don't feel like it's it's really characterized this way as, as much as it should and as much as uh, Hollywood unions characterized it, it's that these models that are actually very accurate, if people try ChatGPT and the other tools that are spinoffs of it or you know, similar types of neural networks. And it, it can be trained on more than just text is what I'm trying to say, like also on media. And you can you can speak to that more accurately than me, Rihanna. But it's really appropriating the labor of thousands, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of workers who produced content that's published on the internet. Mm. And ChatGPT, the whole reason it's able to produce things so accurately is because it's trained on that data. Mm-hmm. And so you're basically taking the millions of hours of work of creative workers and saying, well, we're going to just train our model on all of this labor, not pay them anything, and then produce much more coming out of it that doesn't require any labor at all. Mm-hmm. But it's actually not magical. It's based on the labor of the data that they train it on. So, um, you know, I just I just think that the the struggle that you and others in in Hollywood have have embarked on over the last year to demonstrate to the country the significant impacts of artificial intelligence, but also how to fight it and regulate it um, is so crucial to people's understanding of the situation and and the scale of the problem here. Yeah, definitely. I think the writers and the actors were at the forefront of the struggle in a really important way for like the whole working class. And it's, you know, the start of a much longer fight, but like set really important provisions around AI and also like raise the question around like the who gets to decide these things, right? right? Like right. Is it the workers or is it the bosses who are always going to do it in a way that's, you know, not beneficial for the workers. It's not so that we can 
you know, live more fulfilling lives so that we can have shorter work days, but Mm -hmm. the same pay. Um, It's always to, you know, cut their costs to, you know, do whatever it is to, you know, gain increasing profits on top Mm -hmm. of more profits they've already had for, you know, decades. Right. Um, So, you know, I think it was a really historic victory. I think the writers um, can now decide, you know, how and when to use this new technology. It's in their hands. Um, if the studios, you know, I think they have to ask for consent or the studios cannot actually require the writers to use AI mm-hmm. software. I think that was a huge victory. And I think also the the actors too, they won uh, really significant uh, provisions on, you know, asking for consent when we know that it was these like dystopian proposals um, that they were putting forth about, you know, using the likeness of people mm-hmm. for like life. Right. right. And, uh, you know, it's never going to be like perfect, but it is like, it was like a huge, like landmark achievement. Uh, an example for us, I think in IATSE too, as to like what, what the fight is really going to look like ahead. Yeah. Yeah. No. And I, I think the point you mentioned is, is so important. The fact that like who controls the the usage of artificial intelligence, its production and its application. And mm-hmm. it's not workers. It's these billion-dollar corporations, production companies uh, that aren't utilizing and developing artificial intelligence for the benefit of humankind, mm-hmm. uh, but for commercial use and, and to, to reap super profits from it. And I think over the course of this fight, even though ultimately you're right, it it's it's fundamentally a, it's a protection and, and regulation, but the threat of its proliferation across the industry is not going to stop. Mm-hmm. And the desire of these production companies to pierce through the contract and, and fight harder the next round uh, won't stop either. But I think through this fight, people, not only in the industry of Hollywood, but across, like you said, the entire working class are starting to question, well, like this is kind of insane because this technology is actually super potent and it could, it's not an inherently evil, technology isn't inherently evil. It could have applications that would have amazing impacts on working class people. Mm -hmm. It it could result in uh, safer jobs um, and and work that is actually, the elimination of work that people don't need to be doing and, and, and instead working on things that, have higher impact contributions to society. Mm-hmm. Um, but obviously, the the battle still needs to be waged. It just gets people conscious of the larger larger war at hand. Um, but before we get into, um, you know, the the other aspects of this fight, we want to to frame for for people what exactly is IATSE and what do its members do and what do you do? Who are the what, 70,000, over 100,000? The numbers always confuse me, but who are exactly IATSE members and what role do they play in the production of of movies and shows and so on? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, so IATSE, it stands for the International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees. It's basically all the behind-the-scenes entertainment workers who work in live theater, motion pictures, television, television broadcasting. So like the Super Bowl, like the whole reason you have Mm. like the halftime show um, having happening as quickly as possible is because of IATSE workers Mm -hmm. and concerts. Right. So 
in terms of like the film and TV side of things, a lot of our crafts are like grips, camera assistants, painters, art directors, studio teachers, production coordinators, costumers, hair and makeup, electricians, carpenters, editors, sound, set dressers, um, you know, catering. I mean, I think the list could go on. Like basically we are everyone that is not like an actor, writer, director, and we are represented by many different locals within IATSE. Uh, we work freelance. So when we start a job and then we end a job, we are unemployed without knowing if we will have another job. But uh, we all work on the same set together. So we're all shoulder to shoulder. We see each other's struggles. We work the same hours generally. Um, and we are often referred to as below the line workers. So above the line is uh, actors, writers, directors. Below the line is everything I mentioned before, but that's definitely like affects like the way that we, um, you know, are perceived by the studios, right? We're considered kind of like the the invisible labor, I think, of the film world. But I work as a assistant production coordinator, which means I help before shooting and during shooting. I help run what is called like the production office, mm -hmm. um, which to help sort of visualize what that means. It is basically like the control tower of information. It's like the nucleus of any production. Basically everything starts and stops at the production office. Um, and we generally work with like the producers, the mm -hmm. production managers to fulfill what every other department needs, like the props, the art, construction, camera. You know, I think we all have, um, we all have a call time, right? So each day of shooting, you get a call time, you receive it the day prior, um, but you never receive an out time. So no day would be typical. You would never really know like, oh, this week's going to be like, you know, nine to five. It's never going to be nine to five. But yeah, we're always on call. There's no real breaks. We're working through lunch sometimes like behind our, our computers you know, we're sometimes 14, 16 hour days still, even though, you know, we did win significant gains in 2021. Sometimes we still work Friday days, which is going from, you know, 2 p.m. on a Friday into Saturday, like three in the morning. But basically, you know, there's a high level of skill and reliance in my position and in my department where often we're unable to take a day off. Mm -hmm. It's like if we take a day off, things fall apart very quickly. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, in essence, that is what, you know, my department deals with. I think that's what a lot of departments deal with in their own way, mm -hmm. just on a day to day basis. Yeah. I mean, in, in your opinion, like what would happen uh, the days that you maybe call in sick or can't come in? Honestly, I would probably still get called. I would probably have people calling me even if I were sick to ask questions. I've had that happen actually, um, where people, you know, they are just so reliant on like one person for information that the idea of letting somebody rest, the idea of like, you know, not bothering someone during non-work hours is just mm -hmm. impossible. Mm -hmm. So it's really like, I mean, I think, it is possible just with like how closely we work shoulder to shoulder for us to like, you know, one person to take the load off of another person. But in reality, it is, you know, the sort of you have to plan ahead. And a lot of people, they don't take those those days off like they don't 
I mean, it's a joke, but it's not really a joke that people wait to like do all their like medical appointments when they're not working. They wait, you know, they skip, you know, weddings or like really important anniversaries or things like that because they're just working nonstop. Mm-hmm. It's like you can leave the office, you can leave the physical site, but you still are being asked to do more and more. And some people just stay. Some people, even if they're not at the lower totem pole, people who are even maybe more senior in their department are just tortured hmm. uh, with the hours they have to work and the expect expectations they have to keep um, with the studios. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, as those days start to drag on, like 14, 16 hour days, like that's that's brutal by anybody's standards. And I mean, I understand a lot of IOTC members are also working with like heavy equipment and I mean, as those days drag on, what does that mean for just people's basic safety on the job? I, I know you mentioned workers' comp too. Yeah, I mean, a lot of times it's not uncommon for there to be injuries on our work sites. I mean, we just, unfortunately, we did have someone lose their life hmm. only a few weeks ago on, I think it was a Marvel Disney show, hmm. someone who fell from the rafters while striking a set. He was a local 728 IATSE member. And, you know, by my, you know, I know there's going to be investigation. I know like, you know, by all accounts, I don't know what happened, but our, our members like take safety very seriously. And the exceptions are always the, the things that are outside of our control. Like the, the situations were put in by um, the studios with like just cranking out as much as they can just trying to like squeeze the schedule tighter, like make our days longer, you know, to keep them happy and to keep their numbers, you know, profitable. But, uh, you know, I think outside of that, you know, I think there's people who I've heard have like just damages to their body, like just, you know, like constant, you know, injuries that they have to deal with. Mm -hmm. You know, I think there's people who often fall into like depression or addiction. I've heard of members who've, had to deal with that or sometimes, you know, worse, but, uh, yeah, it's definitely the conditions really affects, you know, the health and livelihood of our members. It is quite existential. And I don't know if it's really been discussed that much. The fact that like, you know, even as we're going into negotiations, whether or not, you know, if we were, you know, pushed towards like a strike, you know, it would be almost contingent on whether or not, our members feel, you know, some people are so desperate for work that they wouldn't be willing to like fight as hard as they could if mm. they hadn't been without work for almost since like the beginning of 2023. Mm. And when we were seeing that like the WGA and SAG were going to go into negotiations, a lot of people experienced a slowdown in work. And so it's like you can tell that there are these patterns of the studios trying to you know, they can just basically withhold work, withhold productions as it, you know, fits their, you know, agenda. But like for us, uh, we really have no say in that. And if we have no say in that, then it's just, we're kind of just at the mercy of the studios constantly. Mm-hmm. What are the top priorities of IATSE members entering this contract fight? And tell us about how things are looking right now? 
Yeah, I don't, I'm not on any negotiations committee, so I don't know the proposals, but I think historically our issues have always been the same. And I think one of them being sustainable benefits. Um, right now, our health plan inflation is just astronomical. I think thanks to, you know, like the runaway capitalist economy, right? And right now it's kind of in an existential just I don't know, it just needs more contributions per hour, basically, from our employer. Um, and that's kind of always been the case. I think safeguards around artificial intelligence is going to be really important. I don't know if it affects every craft in the same way. You know, some crafts are more artistic, like the art directors, prop makers, set designers. But like for administrative crafts, that might not be as concerning. Um, but will definitely be something that we have to fight around. Wage increases, I think, are going to be huge. I don't think we've ever kept up with inflation just in any of our negotiations. I think it's always been like 3% each year. I think streaming will be a big one. Um, the increase to wages on streaming productions, there's always been, you get paid less basically usually on streaming productions versus um, non-streaming um, but then also just like the the residuals, which is like true for like the WGA SAG. And then, of course, like rest periods. Um, we did, I think, win a 10 hour daily rest period last time. I think it was um, extended to all daily and like weekly employees. But like 10 hours out of like 24 hours is still you're working like what, like a 14 hour day. Right. So. I think just finding more ways to like protect ourselves against like the ways that the studios are going to try to like get around, you know, making us work longer days, especially like Fratter days. I think we're like a huge deal mm -hmm. last time around. I've still worked Fratter days. Um, so it just shows that, you know, we need, you know, of course, stronger protections and ways to like safeguard our members. Um, and then I think, like I mentioned, like safety on set is like a huge one. Um, especially for like our camera, you know, camera guilds and, and other like electricians, grips. But yeah, I mean, negotiations are fast approaching. I think March 4th is when they start. Mm. And I think they will be, you know, quite tough. But we are, I think, more prepared and organized just with our communications, internal organization. There's definitely like more work to do. But I think we also like learned a lot from 2021. And so as a result, we've like started like contract action teams, really preparing uh, to fight for like the contract we deserve, you know, just involving our members, really informing them, engaging them in a way that I don't think we previously had the infrastructure to do. Mm -hmm. So a lot of this is like a little bit newer for us, but we are also just on the topic of like our healthcare, fighting for our healthcare and our pensions. We are linking up with Teamsters Local 399 which are like the Hollywood drivers. Um, but then also with like, uh, I think it's the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 40, I think Laborers International Union of North America, Local 724, um, and a bunch of other unions that are like technically Hollywood crafts. Uh, because usually it's been that like the AMPTP has like this sort of divide and conquer tactic. Mm. And I think just going into this, we're showing them that that won't work. Mm. Right. But, you know, during the 2021 bargaining cycle, we basically weren't as prepared, maybe, but we, you know, many of the issues I described 
um, had hit a breaking point where we were basically overwhelmingly ready to strike. Like we were overwhelmingly, I think 98% of members uh, voted in favor of a strike authorization, uh, which was really a first in our history. IATSE has actually never struck. So, you know, I think the preparations to strike really showed uh, the preparations to strike by the membership really showed like the desperation I think that we were feeling at that time. And I think we'll also be felt this time around too, just given that we're coming off of this double strike and that many of our members haven't quite recovered from it or even just the way that, you know, the studios have withhold, withheld productions um, and making us kind of like fight for scraps, right? Mm-hmm. So our TA did pass also last, uh, I think it was in 2021, but, um, you know, many, many of our members were also not as satisfied by the outcome of that. I think it passed by a razor margin where I think the popular vote actually uh, voted the contract down. Um, and I think that um, memory of just like what we were fighting for and just like the dissatisfaction and wanting more it's definitely, it lives within the minds of members, I think, even this negotiation cycle. But, you know, I, I think um, it's difficult. It's hard to say kind of like how things are going to land until we go into negotiations, until we're like deeper into it. I haven't, like I said, I haven't worked since last April. And I know that many of our members are, are very desperate for work. Um, and they're taking, some of them are taking jobs that are actually really beneath their pay grade. Um, I've heard of like producers taking jobs that are like, you know, three pegs beneath like what they usually get paid, members taking non-union jobs, and some people, I think, feeling kind of like blinded by this like overwhelming, you know, need to work, which which obviously is very like understandable. But, you know, I think it's, you know, I think our members also want to fight the studios. I think they want what's theirs. And really, it's just going to be us going through the struggle that is going to really determine where things land. It seems like a big part of what made the SAG-AFTRA and WGA strikes impactful was also that they had such broad support from the public and from a lot of the other workers in Hollywood who were out of work, if not striking themselves, like a lot of IATSE members. Um, Do you think that the contract negotiations for IATSE will similarly depend on the support from from these like broader set of workers that have also recently been on strike and out of work themselves. Absolutely, I think um, I think 2023 was definitely like a turning point for solidarity amongst like Hollywood labor and something that we probably haven't felt in a long time because. The AMPTP really tries to wedge these divides between our unions, mm. saying like, oh, well, you know, this union's the reason why you can't have this or X, Y, Z, right? And we knew like going through the past, you know, double strike that that wasn't true, right? I think we were, you know, feeling more united than ever, just seeing how um, our struggles were, you know, very similar. And the fact that, you know, we were all on the picket line together. The Teamsters have a, I think, is it a no strike clause uh, or a strike? I think there's some sort of strike clause where they don't have to cross the picket line. You know, when there's, you know, picketers, they don't have to like, uh, they can just turn around their trucks. Uh, I know a lot of IATSE workers didn't cross the picket line. 
And I know like the, the sort of like overwhelming solidarity that the writers and actors felt, I know that's gonna be reciprocated to us uh, if our time comes around. And, um, you know, I think it's, it's definitely, we're, I, th- I think we're all much stronger together. And I think we've all realized that through this past struggle. You alluded to to the strike authorization vote of 2021 and some of the lessons that IATSE members and leaders learned through that process. And I think you make a really important point that obviously, on the one hand, a driver of action are the desires and priorities of the union and the uh, desire to actually achieve those priorities and bargaining. But then there's the preparedness of the membership and the organization of the membership to to do the things necessary to achieve those demands. Um, you referenced contract action teams or membership teams. Tell us a little bit about and and the fact that these are sort of new structures that are being introduced in this upcoming contract fight. Tell us a little bit about what all of that means and uh, how it impacts the prospects for victory in 2024? Yeah, definitely. Um, so I guess there's 13 Hollywood locals, right? That's the the Hollywood 13 is the Hollywood bargaining unit that is mainly at the table. And so we have 13, we have 13 different locals where all of our crafts are somewhat divided, right? We're kind of separated in a way. And I think the the power of like the contract action teams is that it's able to not only really engage um, our members in a way that's like sometimes really hard. Like when you think about like our working conditions, the fact that people are working 14 to 16 hour days, maybe they don't see their family. They, you know, are just constantly like either answering emails or just on set. It's really hard to like reach them. And so the contract action teams, the way we're able to like empower our members to take on this new role um, is really going to help us punch above our weight in a way that I think is going to have a lasting impact on IATSE and really make it so that our members are at the table in a way that hasn't maybe been felt before and really just finding those workers that we haven't been able to reach um, because it is really difficult And there are challenges that we face with just like, you know, reaching workers and making them feel like the most informed, like overcoming a lot of the uh, misinformation, I think, that comes from working in uh, an industry like this, where it's a lot of like, you know, you know, a dream factory. Right. And a lot of people see themselves as individuals and they don't see themselves as laborers. And and sometimes there's a lot of anti-union sentiment where people are like, well, why do I have to pay so much in dues? And so. Um, it's really hard to like overcome that when we have the working conditions that we have and like having, you know, boots on the ground, having like members who are empowered in this way, connected to each other in these like contract action teams, and then having, you know, ways to engage with this negotiation cycle um, in a way that's really like meaningful, but also is like a, it's a two-way communication where we get to hear like the feedback from members um, and really, you know, use them and and punch above our weight in a way that we haven't been able to. And I think that, you know, beyond this contract cycle, I think it's going to really help us, you know, elevate our union in a way that's going to create a new layer of like young leaders and 
and people who I think are going to come out of this really understanding, you know, the importance of like the union and their engagement in it. I want to take us back like 80 years or so, because, you know, Hollywood, we've seen in Hollywood over the last year, the revival and really in the labor movement as a whole, the revival of the weapon of a strike by working class people, by workers, uh, and how it exposes really who makes society run, not just one company, but the entire society that if workers withhold their labor, uh, a company ceases to function. They can't do anything. They can't produce anything. They can't provide any service without the people who work every day. Um, in Hollywood, we witnessed two major strike actions, but the strike and class struggle in Hollywood, as Gerald Horn calls it in his book, literally titled Class Struggle in Hollywood, uh, is not uh, is not a foreign experience. Um, and I believe it was uh, the early, the late 1940s and early 1950s, Ronald Reagan um, was actually Ronald Reagan was an active member of SAG-AFTRA and at one point the president of SAG. Um, and I think it was also the time around when SAG struck for residuals initially when streaming wasn't really as prominent as it is now. Uh, that statistic, Jeff, that you alluded to is just insane to think about. I feel like mm-hmm. the remaining 1% of people who aren't subscribed to a streaming service are probably have the password of someone in the 99% of households that that do have a subscription. But um, in the 1950s, the Conference of Studio Unions, uh, I believe it was set dressers, struck. Uh, And that experience, Ronald Reagan uh, says, is what turned him to the right uh, because of supposed communist infiltration in Hollywood unions. But I raise this example to just demonstrate that this is there's there's a real rich history of struggle in in Hollywood, and I wonder if you could speak to that history a little bit that is now just starting to be uncovered now that the strike is being revived in the industry. Yeah, definitely. The I think the history, the early history of Hollywood labor, is something that is very like little known, and often the impact of like a lot of those struggles. On workers today, people don't really know, like the idea, the fact that like that struggle you're talking about with CSU and IATSE and the studios was basically, I think, what, you know, the writers of like the Taft-Hartley Act were looking at when they were like really trying to restrain unions and their ability to strike and to, and to organize. But yeah, I think during, um, I think it was like 1945, like 46 or so. Um, I think that was like the largest like strike wave in American labor history. And that was also when I think it was the CSU, conf- like you said, CSU Conference of Studio Unions, who I think it was 10,500 workers who struck. I think it was like the they were the first sort of big group of workers striking, representing like studio painters, carpenters um, and other crew members. And um they were like very different from, I think, the other sort of Hollywood unions because they were more sort of grassroots, more militant. I think the the president of CSU was uh, a painter and he was an organizer. Uh, it was like a sharp contrast to what I think had been, you know, a mob run, uh, more exploitative machine of Hollywood labor where IATSE uh, was basically run, had been infiltrated by, you know, 
criminals, crime syndicate. And of course, that was like a backdoor for like the studios, right? To do mm-hmm. whatever they wanted. But the CSU, I mean, I think, you know, a lot of these like dynamics between the different labor unions wasn't really lost on the workers, right? So the CSU, I think, formed in light of like a lot of that conflict and those contradictions being run by the members with the power to call a strike when necessary. And because, you know, there were these dynamics in place that created this sort of jurisdictional dispute, I think you would call it, right? And so CSU, which I think was, it was like, I think constantly growing. There were like even IATSE members who were like trying to join, basically join CSU and leave IATSE because they knew it was a more militant union, a stronger union, led to like, you know, a lot of these, you know, the studio heads, the moguls, red baiting CSU. Um, of course, there were like, you know, communists who were supporting CSU and like are very supportive of CSU. Um, but it wasn't like a communist run uh, union. It was just very militant um, and didn't really have any of the sort of like, mm-hmm. you know, didn't have the red tape of like not being able to have workers really involved and in actively deciding the things in their union. But yeah, it really like led to this sort of tension in Hollywood where like the producers were trying to do everything possible to sort of stall negotiations with CSU. Um, I think it, they stalled for like nine months uh, at one point. And then I think an arbitrator came in and then, uh, you know, said the studios were in the wrong and then the studios refused. And so things came to a head when CSU struck and it really fed into like, you know, this sort of really like bloody battle between like the studios and CSU um, and the IATSE, IATSE sort of leadership, I would should say, I think many of the IATSE workers actually refused to cross the picket line um, and even like joined forces during the strike with the CSU workers. But yeah, it sort of was this very seemingly minor labor dispute uh, between like the studio union Um, And the producers that ended up being this very like bloody uh, labor strike in Hollywood, where I think it was like one day in October. I think that's what they I think that's how they tell it. It was like one day in October. uh, There were like 300 CSU. I think it was 300 CSU um, members who were basically at the front gates of Warner Brothers. And there were like you know, these county police officers, strike breakers who came in with like clubs and like bats and like, you know, just really bringing things to like a, a boiling point where it was quite like bloody and like violent. But, you know, I think like those battles, I think like CSU was like really like kind of up against, you know, just so much with like the the sort of backdoor that the studios had with IATSE, unfortunately, that unfortunately, like the the lockout that eventually happened with CSU forced CSU basically just just to fall apart. And unfortunately, you know, I think the threat of like this militant union also led to other things that were like the Un-American Activities Committee holding its sort of infamous a nine-day trial and the Hollywood blacklist sort of came out of that. But Mm -hmm. it was really these like workers who were in charge of like their own destiny within this union that really threatened, you know, the powers that be in Mm -hmm. Hollywood in a way that I think hadn't been 
seen before. And it just really probably in the eyes of the studios had to be stomped out as at any, by any means necessary. Yeah. I mean, I think we often see these kinds of things go hand in hand, right? When they, when, when they're threatened and they see this militant leadership, this militancy from the whole membership, um, that when the bosses then actually try to play a role, you know, usually backed by the state, like you were saying, in purging these militant and progressive or even socialist or communist elements from leadership, what often happens instead is they favor potentially like some of the most corrupt elements of leadership because it's easier for the boss to buy off just a couple of people than it is to work on actually addressing the demands of a militant group of workers. Um, you know, I mean, I think, right, like people talk about, like that's that's often sort of an anti-union talking point to try to say that unions are corrupt. And what they miss in half of the equation is what's the boss doing to actually push that corruption and favor even the kind of leadership that they feel that they can buy off. Um, it, it does sound like the militancy is starting to have more of a revival in Hollywood, though. What do you think has been really the explanation behind like seeing more of that militancy coming back in recent years? Yeah, I think um, a lot of it has to do with workers really realizing that they, they are the ones who do their job better than anyone else. I think that coming off of like the COVID-19 pandemic, just seeing how, you know, corporations like left workers on like in the dust, basically, but also relied heavily on them to just continue working. I think the film industry was actually one of the few that kind of kept going. Like they put all this money into um, testing and masks and like, I think they were even hoarding a lot of like essential PPE hmm. just to keep us going mm -hmm. so that they could continue to churn out productions. And I think for a lot of workers in our industry, um, that was a really, you know, a conscious building moment for us to realize that like these studios don't care about us. They don't care about us when we, you know, aren't able to pay rent, when we aren't able to, you know, when we fall into like, you know, depression or addiction because of like the long hours the studios don't care if we, you know, fall asleep at the wheel. And I think just the sort of illusion of like our industry where it's like, you know, this idea that what we do is that we aren't like workers. You know, sometimes I think there's been a wedge pushed in between like, you know, the creative side of things and like the more labor side that like, so people don't see themselves as like workers. They see themselves as like artists who are just like, you know, prized you know, by the studios. And of course, like, you know, the actors and the writers experienced firsthand how that's not true. They've experienced how, you know, it doesn't matter if you do something that's very creative and beautiful, you are like, you know, you are a worker no matter what. And it's, it's the studios who uh, try to give us this illusion that like what we do, you know, doesn't have value that like the sort of like divide and conquer that they tried to like project on us uh, I think it's just totally like, I think it's over now. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, the glitz and glamour of Hollywood isn't gonna isn't gonna cut it anymore. People are starting to actually see through to get to the actual nature of like uh, of this industry and how their employer is gonna treat them. 
Rihanna, thanks so much for joining. I feel like that was a great point to end on. And we're very much looking forward to seeing how this fight evolves and having you and other folks in IATSE, AMP, and Hollywood in general on the show in the coming weeks and months. Thank you so much. We'll keep you updated. Thank you. We love it. That's it for today. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of On the Line. Make sure you like, share, and follow us at Labor On The Line on all streaming and social media platforms. As always, whether we're on the assembly line, on the phone line, or on the picket line, you'll always find us on the line.